On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. Hi, this is Pod Save the UK. I'm Nish Kabar. And I'm Coco Khan. And this week, we'll ask why it's taken so long for politicians to wake up to the most widespread miscarriage of justice in UK legal history. Did justice get lost in the post? We'll be discussing how and why the ITV drama Mr Bates versus the Post Office has shaped this week's news agenda with our special guest, the former BBC Director of News and Editor of The Times, James Harding. Hi, Coco. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Nish. We're back. We are back. 2024, baby. Um, how year was... of the Dragon, can I just say. Is it the Year of the Dragon? Yes. Hello. That's my year. Dragon, baby. <laughs> well, how was your Christmas and New Year period? Well, it was busy. I'm a pool player now. Yes. So we have discussed this. You are now becoming a pool player. Yeah. Like Paul Newman in The Hustler. <laughs> yeah. Exactly that. I'm so excited. Wait, talk me through all of this. So you've decided 2024 is the year that you're going to take up pool. Yeah. So there's a trope in film and TV of the woman who walks into a a bar and it's full of men and she, you know, plays a bit of pool and everyone's like, what is this lady with her elegant long fingers and large breasts doing in here? She can't possibly pay. That is how men talk. That's bang on. Well, little what, what they don't realise... We realize, focus mainly on the elegant long fingers <laughs> and the large breasts. But what they don't realise, right, is that a long finger, that's basically like an aiming device that yeah, right. sort of gives you precision and the breasts give you elevation. Women are born to play pool. And so I have got this thing where I want to have that experience where I go into a bar and people don't respect or suspect and I annihilate them. And you hustle them. them. And that's, I hustle a, that's a classic pool Maybe not hustle. for money because that seems mean, but just right. for pride. <laughs> so that's what I've been doing. So I've been learning to play. What's your pool slang name going to be? Well, I'm glad you mentioned that, Nish, because I have actually pulled together a list. Oh, here we go. Okay. <laughs> Harry Potter, because I pot. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, not bad. feel like it might have been taken. <laughs> okay, and here's another one. It's a bit more esoteric. Yeah. The cloud. The cl- <laughs> <laughs> you could have given me a year <laughs> and of me continuously trying to guess your pool name and I would not have got to the, the cloud. Well, because you were the one who told me about the hurricane. You told me about the hurricane. This is a reference to uh, in the 1970s, there was a very famous uh, snooker player. Because, again, for non-British people listening, snooker was an unfathomably <laughs> massive televised sport uh, in the United Kingdom. It, it's sort of like pool for nerds. Uh, is the best way I could describe the sport of snooker. And Alex Hurricane Higgins was one of the most celebrated players in the 70s. Right. So you told me about that and I kept thinking, weather systems. That's a, that's a good place to start. <laughs> and I thought a lot about myself because I know about myself. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, I'm good and sometimes I'm bad. Yeah. Like I know that. I'm like British weather in that way. You know, you don't know what you're going to get. I'm going to chop and change. But sometimes I will make it rain. So I was thinking <laughs> I could be... The cloud. There we go. What do you think? The cl- I, I love it. I absolutely love it because it's genuinely unexpected. Yeah. As is you taking up the sport of pool in 2024. <laughs> this also, just to be clear for the listeners, this isn't something that Coco's expressed a vague interest in before. <laughs> it was literally, we went on Christmas holidays. We came back. I said, how was your holiday? She said, I'm getting into pool. <laughs> and I guess we've known each other for long enough that I thought, okay, that's it. I'm if not even vaguely surprised that. thing by where that. you like look at something on the TV and you're like, I'm going to do that. Yeah, I did that, but with stand-up comedy. And look where that's got me. Quite far, actually. Exactly. It's working out well. So you never know. Maybe I'm going to start a revolution. So anyway, that's been my time. What about your time? I mean, I did very, very little over the holidays. I, You know, I made one of my... Um, you know, Instagram promotional adverts. Oh, yeah. I re- released my stand-up show available globally 
Uh, you if you broke want to buy the internet, it, didn't you? Nishkumar.co.uk. I don't think I broke the internet. That is what happened. There was just a point where you couldn't download it over the over the Christmas period. Now, we haven't ascertained whether that was just too, due to a basic technical error or an overwhelming surge in demand. I'm going to pretend it was an overwhelming surge in demand. I'm going to stick with that line. I do actually have a gift for you. Uh, and it was a gift that was uh, organised before Christmas, but has now just arrived. Um, okay. And it's it, it's from the, the entire PSUK team. Uh, Coco is shaking. It's an envelope uh, for those people listening. I'm going to do that thing where I feel it. What is it? What is it? It's quite a thin envelope. <laughs> What's it going to be? Yes. Thank you for that. This is going to haunt me in my dreams. I'm already quite uh, susceptible to nightmares. For the listeners, it's the 2024 uh, calendar, the Lionel Rishi calendar. Um, and the- Every month, a different Photoshop picture of Rishi Sudak over Lionel Rishi's face. Lionel Rishi. <laughs> Our guest this week is James Harding, the editor and co-founder of Tortoise Media. He was also the former editor of The Times and then the director of news and current affairs at BBC. Welcome to the podcast, James. Thank you very much, Coco the Cloud. Come on, I understand who's the name. It's good, right? And when the cloud hits the pool table... What happens? Oh, you've got to be there to find out, James. <laughs> when the cloud hits the pool table, chaos reigns. You don't know what you're going to get. You might get blown away. Yes. It might be... Drizzle. Mizzle. <laughs> <That's> horrible. <laughs> um, well, look, journalism is always crucial, uh, obviously more so in an election year, possibly a double election year with the US-UK. And politicians are going to be in this country sort of competing for favourable coverage. So there's lots to talk to you about, James. You've got such a long and varied history in uh, journalism and the media. But what we want to do first is just talk about the big story of the week, which is the Horizon Post Office scandal. Now, now just to summarise, more than 700 sub-postmasters, these are people who are self-employed and run branches of the post office under contract to the central post office itself. Over 700 of them were given criminal convictions between 1999 and 2015 after faulty accounting software, which is called Horizon, made by the Japanese company Fujitsu, made it appear as though money was missing from their shops. And this had real and terrible consequences. 236 people went to prison. Many others were financially ruined and had their reputations destroyed. And there were even at least four suicides linked to this scandal. To date, 93 of these convictions have been overturned and only 30 people have agreed full and final settlements. So there's a public inquiry which began in February 2021 and is restarting this week after the Christmas break and is due to conclude at the end of the year. And the reason we're all talking about it now is because of the ITV drama Mr Bates versus the Post Office. It stars Toby Jones and it aired over four episodes during the Christmas period. The computer system Post Office spent an arm and a leg on is faulty. No one else has ever reported any problems with Horizon. No one. You're responsible for the loss. I haven't got that money. And... I don't know where it's gone. In the face of a huge swell of public anger, politicians have been bounced into finally taking decisive action. Just before we started this recording, Rishi Sunak announced at Prime Minister's Questions that the government will bring in a new law to swiftly exonerate and compensate victims. Mr Speaker, this is one of the greatest miscarriages of justice in our nation's history. People who worked hard to serve their communities had their lives and their reputations destroyed through absolutely no fault of their own. The victims must get justice and compensation. Sir Wynne Williams' inquiry is undertaking crucial work to to expose what went wrong, and we've paid almost £150 million in compensation to over 2,500 victims. Uh, But today I can announce that we will introduce new primary legislation to make sure that those convicted as a result of the Horizon scandal are swiftly exonerated and compensated. So Keir Starmer welcomed the move, adding that it is the job of all of us to deliver justice. So it's been an interesting case, I suppose, because the thing that I've been seeing a lot is why wasn't there more of a fuss about it before? Now, I guess I wanted to kick off talking to you, James. You must have covered this in your many kind of media roles. Why don't you think it cut through? I think there are two really extraordinary stories or big mysteries here. One is, how did this happen? Right. Even when you watch the show, you find yourself asking, 
What was the story the post office were telling themselves when one person after another, after tens, after hundreds came forward, and that you can have a miscarriage of justice at this scale, and within an institution, people weren't stopping and saying, perhaps they're right and we're wrong. I still don't quite understand that. And there's a second mystery, which is, why is it that people started reporting this? In 2015, they did a panorama on the post office. It didn't cut through. You know, Rishi Sunak just mentioned the fact that when Williams is running a public inquiry, that's not cutting through. And you can be glib about it. You can say, well, it's Toby Jones. (laughs) He's a very good actor. He's brilliant. And when he somehow captures that thing that we all feel in different ways, which is this powerlessness, this sense of being up against it, it speaks to people and then it just changes. It goes from being a news story to a human story and it all changes. But to be honest with you, it's hard, that second mystery, to understand why only now, mm. only after an ITV program, you've got the Prime Minister at the dispatch box, right? But hundreds of people get their lives torn apart and there hasn't been this kind of apology. And so I think there's two ways of thinking about it. Either you can be a journalist who grinds their teeth and think, why aren't they listening to you know what I'm putting out on, you know, on air or publishing? Or you say, actually... There's something incredible about the power of storytelling, and when it works, it really works. Um, you know, I think there's a lot to take in that in terms of patience, because the thing that you find when you listen to the um, sub-postmasters is just how long it's been. You know, people yeah. talk about 2015, but a lot of this happened, you know, actually 20 years ago. Do you think that that's why there's been some political inertia around this issue because this is something that everybody is responsible for because it's, you know, it cuts right through Labour government, Conservative coalition. So you've got the Labour Party, the Conservative Party and the Liberal Democrats who all are not necessarily implicated in this, but certainly bear some responsibility for the oversight. Do you think that that's, there's a sense that that, why there might have been some political inertia around So I think, I, I think it's, I think it's so interesting and so chewy because everyone has got a good argument for blaming someone else. Yeah, you yeah. Know? So, the, so the politicians say, well, listen, this wasn't really me, yeah. right? You know, you need to speak to the people in Whitehall. Speak to the permanent secretaries. They were the civil servants who came, and when I said, is there something wrong here? They said, no, we've checked it, it's fine. Then they say, well, the perm sex would say no. Yeah. Go and speak to the post office. The post office say, oh, no, go and speak to Fujitsu. Fujitsu you know, there's always a knock-on. And even within Fujitsu, you hear people saying, well, it's not exactly clear, it wasn't clear to us. I think that, There is a... Oh, and by the way, we haven't even talked about the kind of journalistic culpability. Did journalism do enough? Did the the, Was the story well enough told? Did people say, oh, look, it's too complicated, or if you like, the whole story is too distributed? I think there's a really interesting lesson for politics and journalism, which is that both politicians and newsrooms will go after heroic failures... Right. an individual who's done something terrible yeah, because it's a story everyone can understand and miss systemic failures. Mm. And systemic failures affect many more people. So, you know, when I was at the Times, we had this, we for a long time tried to get the bottom of child sex grooming in Rotherham and Rochdale and a whole bunch of other towns. And for a long while, no one touched the story. No one else would touch the story. A systemic failure is harder to get at than a single culprit, someone who's done something wrong. And fun enough, we've talked a bit within Tortoise about what you take from this. And you've seen newsrooms too scramble this week to kind of add a new line to the post office story. But actually, I think the real thing is to stop and think, okay, well, what are the other systemic failures? What's happening in housing? Yeah. What's happening in other parts of everyday life, scandals in plain sight? Maybe that's the thing you should take from this. Yeah, I saw Peter Apps, who we had on the show a couple of weeks ago, who's written a brilliant book about Grenfell Tower, saying, yeah. I hope that this... Essentially, he was saying, like, this needs to inspire more kind of public interest in these kind of big systemic failures. And he was talking specifically about housing and the issues around Grenfell, which, if you haven't heard that episode, it's really worth going back and listening to because he really spells out the systemic failures around that. Do you think this this could have a kind of positive impact in terms of the stories that people are looking to tell about these more complicated systemic failures that don't have a single baddie at the heart of them? So, so the, the 
the genius of Mr. Bates versus the post office is they did something even better than find a baddie. They found a hero. Yeah. Right. And there's something for us to learn in that, which is if you can show the capacity to actually meet the system and change it, that really captured the imagination in a different way. I don't know, you know, I was thinking as you were talking, Nish, about the PPE scandal versus the bounce-back loan scandal, right? So Michelle Moan is one of those cases where you, you go out on the street, you leave this studio, within 20 yards you'll find someone who will just erupt around that story. Yeah, absolutely. It, you, you might walk through town for a fair few miles before you get to someone who's going to talk about fraud within the bounce-back loans. Even though Just summarise those two stories for us, just for people that, are, in case there's people that aren't familiar with them. Michelle Moan, uh, a Tory peer, yeah. early in COVID, there's a scramble worldwide to try and get protective uh, equipment and her partner's business bid for this, picked up a contract well over a couple of hundred million pounds and they always denied that they stood to make money and then went out and gave an interview to Laura Koonsberg of the BBC where she sort of acknowledged that she'd not been straight about this and that she had stood indirectly to gain from this £60 million. So it's one of those perfect cases where it's not what you know, it's who you know, access enables you to uh, stand to gain a fortune. The bounce-back loans was Rishi Sunak's baby, right? So when he was Chancellor and it seemed as though the economy was just flat on its back, COVID had essentially locked us all down, they tried to work out how they were going to keep the economy going and they started pumping huge amounts of public money, billions and billions of pounds. And the level of fraud in that runs to the billions. Yeah. Right? So when people worry about, are we going to be able to build a new hospital? Or what are we going to do about rebuilding school classrooms that are falling down? Yeah. There's huge amounts of public money that's missing. But it's one of those classic things, I think, which is stories that are perhaps not as significant, not as consequential for the whole country, but that we do understand, versus stories that are consequential. Yeah but are really complicated and knotty and have lots of different actors in them and neither a single culprit or a single hero. So, you know, I'd love to answer your thing, Nish, and say, yes, I'd, you know, I hope that the consequence of this, <laughs> this story is that people look more at systemic stories. There's a reason we don't. They're complicated. I mean, it's the kind of classic climate change problem, isn't it? We yeah. all know it's important, but my God, it's, you know... You know, it's hard to find the story there I mean, sometimes. It's, it's it's really interesting. I definitely think like the the press and people interested in journalism should do some sort of soul searching around it. You know, we are facing historically low trust levels in the media. That has a huge impact on you know on society and how it functions. Um, and I do wonder if you know, there's constantly this this thing you see on Twitter where they say, oh, the mainstream media, media won't report on this and then it will be a link to Sky News and you're like, oh, what? I don't yeah. understand. <laughs> that was the mainstream media. But really what they mean there is that like, there is something of a consensus, I think it's fair to say, amongst traditional press in certain issues. And so where you find these individual stories that kind of puncture that, they don't ever seem to get front page attention or they don't seem to cut through. I think it's quite easy to say, oh, we produced it, you could have read it, that's your problem. I think actually there is something for journalists to take away and think, okay, well, clearly this is upsetting people. It's upsetting people that the reporting has been done, but for whatever reason, it didn't get to them. And it didn't get to them because we didn't give them the storytelling that they needed and we didn't give them the human angle that they wanted. And I think, yeah, I wonder if this is this could be something that we can build upon and perhaps rebuild trust in the media through this. So, so there's an interesting thing which I'm trying to figure out. I can't, I can't confess to feeling that I've really cracked it, but definitely something's changed, strangely as a result of podcasting. A very weird thing. So when we set up Tortoise, the thinking was we'd build a slow newsroom. There were enough people chasing after breaking news. We'd try and understand what was driving the news. And then we got into podcasts because there's a way of approaching the world that's through storytelling. And when we started doing that... We realised that you can't do what you do on a radio station because you're not live. That the podcast sits there and the story has to, if you like, last. And so that made you think about 
what stories you look at. We didn't want to join the kind of true crime race. There's yeah. plenty of that about. This, we're actually running out of true crimes to make podcasts about. <laughs> we, need, we need a new wave of serial killers. There's going to be the first podcast killer who did it for the podcast. <laughs> yeah, by the way, though, that's a real thing. There's people who are sort of trying to kind of sell their rights in the, you know, in the story world, yeah. in true crime. That's a whole other story. <laughs> but, 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 my, but, but what we came, I found myself thinking more and more was, if you're trying to tell people a story, a story that illuminates the way the world works, you can't do what I used to do in newspapers or even do did kind of putting out bulletins for the BBC. You can't just give people a news line. You can't give people a headline. You have to give a real story. There is something to be learned from Mr. Bates in the post office, which is, yes, let's look at the systemic injustices, but let's also figure out a way that you tell a story that people can stick with it. And through the individual story, they understand systems. Well, before we leave this subject, um, we just wanted to say that our first PSUK hero of 2024 has to be the real life Alan Bates. He's been popping up on new shows, doing interviews to remind us that this isn't just TV entertainment, but real life. And rather than doing a victory lap, he's continuing the fight, pushing for swift compensation for victims and for those responsible at the post office to be brought to justice themselves. There certainly came a point in all of that when it was a few felt vindictiveness on there. They were out to prove a point. They had the money, they had the muscle, they had the power. And we, the little sub-postmasters, couldn't do anything. I mean, we, we have been looking at, of recent, um, uh, private prosecutions. And I think many of the group would want to see a number of the, the real guilty in all of this brought to account. That was Alan Bates speaking to ITV's Good Morning Britain. The New York Times calls BritBox the best of British telly. Stream acclaimed original series, including Payback, starring Peter Mullen. Stonehouse, starring Matthew McFadden, and Archie, the man who became Cary Grant, starring Jason Isaacs. Plus, discover powerful new series like Three Little Birds and the return of BAFTA-winning drama Time, starring Bella Ramsey, Tamara Lawrence, and Jodie Whittaker. Stream the best of British TV only on BritBox. Start a free trial at BritBox.com. Silence is golden, especially when it comes to brakes. That's why Napa Silent Guard are built to be one of the smoothest and most quiet brakes on the market. Made with fiber-reinforced shims that eliminate noise for the life of the pad. Rubber-coated hardware for a better fit and quality design that meets and exceeds OE performance. Silent Guard brakes deliver the stopping power drivers demand. Available now at Napa locations nationwide. So, James, we've, you've mentioned this start of an election year. We're obviously going into a big year. Um, Rishi Sunak has said that he's working on the assumption that he will hold a general election. I find that choice of phrase quite extraordinary. <laughs> he's working under the assumption that he will call a general election. <laughs> he's desperately looking for clues into decisions he is about to make. It doesn't suggest a kind of clarity or foresight in his leadership, but he said that he's working under the assumption that he will hold a general election in the second half of the year. The Labour Party has said that they're still preparing for the possibility of a spring election. So traditionally, this means it's time for parties party leaders to start wooing newspaper editors. So you were the editor of the Times uh, during the 2010 election. How wooed were you? Were you wooed? <laughs> Would you describe it as a wooing? <laughs> Never enough. <laughs> uh, how much wooing is there? Um, Fun of when I took over the Times, the former editor was a guy called William Rees-Mogg. Yeah. Right? And uh, he makes uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg look extremely hip. William was like not only pinstripe suit, chalk stripe suit, very, very old fashioned um, uh, man. I actually have to say, I really loved him. Our politics were completely different. I mostly disagreed with things he said, but he was a really genteel, thoughtful person. Someone f felt like from another time. I think, you know, he, and he would say as much. He yeah. would have rather lived in the 18th century. He was one of those people. <laughs> He said something to me, because I took him out for lunch just as I started editing the Times, and I said, listen, how do you do this? What do you do? And he said, you know, actually, fun enough, an election's an interesting thing. And he said, 
he said, you, you'll feel like politicians are coming for you. The reality is a broadsheet paper, a paper like The Times, really doesn't make much difference to the overall vote. Right, right? yeah, yeah. People who buy a paper like The Times know what they think. They know what they're going to vote anyway. Is it the tabloids... They make a difference. Right? This is the and famous, the things, in the in, after the nineteen ninety two Conservative victory, the, the Sun newspaper claimed it was the Sun what won it. it. That was the front page headline. And and, and there was you know there were always some arguments back and forth about that. The reason I mention it is the tabloids obviously don't matter now. Right? Right. It's hard to think the broadsheets really going to sway people's votes. It's much more fragmented. Yeah. So there's not an obvious or easy place. So there's so many places politicians need to be. It's much more video. And I think this TikTok question is going to be one of the big questions of 2024, right? In the way in which Facebook was of 2016, TikTok will be of 2024. And it's really much harder to track and it's much harder to see what information is reaching which people. And we say that with a view to the UK, but there's whatever it is, 4 billion people going to the polls this year. I think this is going to be one of those years where the media spends a lot of time trying to understand how people are interpreting politics and what politicians say. Well, I mean, in terms of the influence that media owners or media moguls have had, uh, your old boss, Big Roops, old Murdoch, um, has officially handed over the reins of News Corp um, to Lachlan. Um, So are we saying that this is the first election that, for two reasons, might not have Rupert Murdoch's fingerprints on it because he's taken a, you know, theoretically he's taken a more backseat role. But also, do you think the influence of someone like him is dissipated by the fragmentation of the media landscape? So, yes. Yeah. More, I mean, a bit fragmented, a bit dissipated, mostly overtaken. Yeah. Mostly new platforms that have overtaken the old ones. The the one that intrigues me is GB News. And the GB reason- News intrigues a lot of people <laughs> for a variety of different reasons. Yeah, and intrigue is a nice word for it, right? GB News had enormous upfront investment. Yeah. Right? I know that, you know, this looks pretty good on screen, but the reality is <laughs> yeah. Don't tell it's people not how we had live, the tens of millions, 70 million pounds. I'm not even wearing trousers. <laughs> <laughs> 70 million pounds upfront investment, what a the latest results, losing £30 million a year. People are paying for a voice in the public square with a very particular political agenda. That is a big change. Now, people listening to this who don't necessarily love a kind of progressive politics might think, well, that's very cute, you know, Nishan Kumar out there every week, and they've got a very clear political agenda too. Yeah, True enough, true enough. And I'm not sure that I'm saying I'm, um, I'm against that kind of diversity of of, uh, platforms and the competition of voices. But I do think that we've got to be honest that that people are putting in very, very different sums to try and control the way in which the debate is held and to define the debate. And I do think there's an issue here, which is people who wrap themselves in the the idea of freedom of speech, but actually are in the freedom from fact business. And that is a... That's a problem in the media. And so the reason I've kind of sort of skirted away, if you like, Nish, from the whole kind of Rupert Murdoch issue is, okay, fine. If you want to talk about Rupert Murdoch, there's lots to talk about. But it feels as though that's like 1990s, noughties, possibly even early teens. In 2024, it feels to me there's a whole world of unseen influence that's happening on social media platforms. What's their responsibility? And there are people who are deliberately buying media voice to define A, the debate, and then the future leadership of political parties, that matters. I mean, that sounds um, quite scary and horrible. But (laughs) on the other side, the fact that more kind of power is being given to social media, doesn't that mean that voices who had hitherto been on the margins get heard? Now, obviously, there's downsides to that. That means cranks and like Nazis. But there's also people who have, have like radical ideas that you know, perhaps on this podcast we might like. So, no, no, so that's, that's exciting. So, so I completely, that's the reason why it's a difficult one. It's a, it's a difficult one. You, it's not, I'm not coming here saying, oh, I, I wish it was like it was. Right. That's not at all the point. But if you think where we started this conversation, we started a conversation with the post office. Yes. 
the, the challenge of this much more fragmented world is either there's not the money, there's not the economics to do the reporting that essentially holds power to account, so that's a problem, or you've got the regurgitation problem, which is social media just packages and repackages stuff that's already out there, or it just makes stuff up. And in the making stuff up, who checks? Mm. And and who and who's holding who to account in all of that? In election year, I think we're really going to worry about this. And by the way, what are we now? We're like into our second week of January. What's the betting that by the end of 2024, there hasn't been a really, really meaty argument about who won an election? Yeah. And with that then come some real questions about, well, what happens to democracy? These are... I think these questions that seem mm. as though they're like, hey, what's the role of TikTok might very well end up being a, you know, who gets to govern. So I wanted to talk to you about the BBC. I particularly want to talk to you about Newsnight because, yes. you know, we were just talking there about GB News. GB News, is it news? Do they break stories? Do they report? Or is it just one long comment section that is an entire channel and the domination of comment obviously Newsnight is looking like it's going to become more debatey the death of reporting is something we've talked about and just generally thinking about the BBC and what is left for the BBC News I mean what are they meant to do how are they meant to survive Uh, people who are particularly familiar with my career will know that I have quite a storied relationship (laughs) with the BBC (laughs) Uh, but like a kicked dog I cannot stop (laughs) feeling loyalty towards it and you were director of BBC director of BBC News for five years was yeah and you know I'm very happy for us to exist as a podcast but we are a parasite I would say and we're a parasite on actual journalism and reporting we provide a yeah we the news equivalent of ringworm and we require a host body um, and I always think organisations like Reuters and the Associated Press but also the BBC are the first wave of reporting and they're the you know the basis and the ballast of the fourth estate that is essential for a functioning democracy I mean how do you reflect on the position of the public broadcaster in this country from a news and output and how can it save itself <laughs> so I'm a believer. Okay. I am a deep believer in the BBC. I think it is one of the greatest things in the country. It's like, you know, when you, the interesting thing is when you talk to people who look at the UK as a whole and they say, okay, what's amazing about this place? They're like, oh, you know. And they'll always say the same things. It's always the universities, the NHS, NHS, the BBC, BBC, and the Premier League. (laughs) It'll be some version of that. You know, Coco, to your first question about, what happens in a world of endless opinion mm. and not enough shoe leather reporting? You know, there are lots of worries in the world. The BBC's capacity to do frontline reporting is not one of them. They're still the best broadcast news organisation in the world by a street. Um, I think that the question of what happens with younger audiences, mm. right? I think that's a really, that's a big one, not just for the BBC, but it's a, it's a big one. And I look at actually some of the changes to things like Newsnight and think, well, actually, changing it up is a good idea. Really? You know, you've, got to cha- you've got to change things up. You've got, you can't be so frightened of your own heritage that you don't make changes. Don't you think there's enough chat? Little less conversation. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> it was very rude for me to say that on my podcast. Yeah. <laughs> very nice. Um, I think. I think. Fun of actually on the BBC, if they really go for it, if they really have a range of people, right, and if they put uh, people from one end of the political spectrum against the other, if they manage to do what you do, which is actually create some character in an argument, right, rather than have that. BBC voice, they could do something really exciting. I mean, just Nish, I know you've been kind of uh, actually quite modest about the whole business of BBC and satire. That's a massive issue, right? So I think that, and thought when I said the BBC, and one of the reasons why we tried, and I think BBC still needs to try a lot more, to get comedy around politics on the air, is that there's no better way, actually, other than possibly your kind of post office style drama. And so I think. Even better than that, there's no better way than really guaranteeing the independence of the BBC than having political comedy that says, look, we're willing to laugh at the people in power. 
right? If we can do that, that really, really strengthens the place of the BBC. It's, I mean, I'd love to hear from you how difficult it is. I mean, not how difficult the BBC is, just how difficult it is to do great political comedy mm. week in, Especially week out. Especially the balance rules. It, yeah, it was, it was diff- listen, it was difficult. Nobody operates well when they have a gun pointed at their head. And I feel that increasingly, as the Conservative government sort of went on and on in the 2010s, the threats to the BBC's editorial independence, the freezing of the licence fee, I, I felt a political hand moving its way to the throat of the BBC and the organisation started getting more and more frightened about doing anything that would upset the Conservative government. And that, that, was, that, I, I, that was my personal experience of over a period of about six years starting on radio and doing radio comedy about politics and moving into television. And it's one of the only times in my life where something getting more successful actually created more problems for me on a day-to-day basis. But the the, the, the interesting thing is, I mean, we talked a lot about that at the BBC. We talked about that. You know, uh, one of the arguments, which I think is a good one, is how would you move to an independent mechanism for setting the licence fee so you weren't in a position where the most important editorial and cultural organisation in the country at some point sooner or later had to go to Downing Street for the budget. I I couldn't agree with you more. I think that's so important. That's one thing. But but there's there's another which is, you know, I, I came to feel that impartiality is a really important part of what the BBC does. You know, accuracy is a really important part of what the BBC does, you know, fair treatment of people in the news, all of those things. But impartiality you've got to watch out for because if you don't, it's a trap. Yeah, It's a trap that politicians set to say, look, you can't say that, you need to say this. Mm. And so I think, certainly editorially, it feels to me as though you're much better off saying the the our focus is the truth. That's what we're going to go after, right? And it may be that, that uh, doesn't accord with your political sense of balance. But if you if you try too much to meet the politician's definition of impartiality, you're in trouble. And the reason why I set so much store by comedy is that the power of the joke, the power of the thing that makes people laugh, surely gets beyond any kind of imp- impartiality rules. I, I still really think that if you look at what... I know this is kind of infuriating for comedians, but if you look at what SNL, Saturday Night Live, did for NBC and for the culture of politics in the United States, I still think we're missing that and we haven't really had it. Uh, You know, I'm sorry, this is like an old, old issue, but, you know, since the the spitting image kind of... and, And that was the reason why, you know, what you do and what you did is really, really matters. Uh, and I think we still have to get back to that. I think we still have to get back to more political comedy. And maybe it may not be just the BBC, it may be ITV, Sky, but that's really... And it's also, by the way, incredibly helpful for news because it means that people see the courage of the broadcaster to stand up and say to people in power, we don't mind having a laugh at your yeah. expense. Also, I feel like you should tell the listeners about your love of Lionel Richie. No, this is, this is, this is just slander. This is what this is. Go, go. <laughs> and this, like, is, and this, this is, is a, a comment long... show, James, so I can do stuff like that. You can that. just say what you I like. just say what This I is like. the freedom from fat issue <laughs> that I was trying to talk about. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so my former flatmate gave me a framed uh, poster of Lionel Richie because she said that she'd caught me downstairs listening to Hello. Okay. <laughs> Right. No shame. Is, no shame in that. Not, not, Some shame. <laughs> Come on. Yeah. Even even I think if you're a Lionel Richie fan, yeah, that's... I think there's I think there's better I mean, I would dance on the ceiling over Hello. Yeah. <laughs> I think that would be my position. But the, the claim I tried to make back to her was that I was listening to Gil Scott Heron, which I thought was made me sound yeah, like yeah, someone yeah. that I'm not. But, yeah. but you know, yeah. there, there you are. like a byword for yeah. being cool. That's yes, Gil that's Scott Heron's one of those they names. They don't that... sound the same at all. <laughs> let's, put, let's put it this way. She said that I wasn't. It was hello. I still have a... It, actually, at home, I still have the framed picture of uh, Lionel Richie. Listen, I just want you to know I saw Lionel Richie at Glastonbury. Amazing. Just wandered yeah. past. I was like, what's going on there? That man can surf. Yeah. <laughs> My God. He, he, yeah. Anyway. anyway. So, so when you say that you do a sort of variety of conversation, what you do is you do really fun chat. Then you bring <laughs> us in. We're miserable. 
Right, talk about terrifying, <laughs> terrible things, and then you round it off being fun. That's generally the formula, yes. <laughs> That's great. I have a lot to learn about this podcasting thing. <laughs> Thank you so, so much for having James me James in. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much. Elsewhere in the news this week, uh, I've got another extremely fun question for you, Coco. Yeah. Does a declining birth rate spell doom for Britain? Okay. The story here is the number of children being born in the UK has sunk to its lowest level for two decades. It's now lower than it was during the Great Depression in the 1930s. And it's almost as low as it was during the First World War. Okay, and that that is a huge concern because an aging population puts pressure on the NHS and social care. You need workers to pay for that. But the working age population and the age of the population that in 20 years time will be working age is shrinking. So is this something that we should be worrying about? It's really interesting because I've been following. I'm obsessed with this. This conversation seems to be happening quite a lot on the right. And for whatever reason, the progressives, the leftists are kind of shirking away from it. And I kind of get why. It's not the easiest conversation to have because very easily you're kind of hectoring women, aren't you? Telling yeah. them that they need to have more babies. And then suddenly, what's next? We're going to tell them to fulfill their biological imperative. Like, where do you end? But economically, it's clearly not great yeah. that there are not enough children and an aging population. And of course, you can top that up with immigration. I'm pro-immigration. That's fine. But, but even so, there is still, this is something that we need to be talking about. This conversation, you're right, is largely happening... On the political right, there is a string of sort of um, op-ed pieces in by right-leaning columnists. Um, but there are also, you know, politicians from the mm. hard right of the Conservative Party, like Miriam Cates, for example, have been talking about a declining birth rate. And the concern with the conversation is it very quickly gets into quite contentious conspiracy theory, wingnut, great replacement nonsense. Yeah, yeah, So yeah. why do you think, so you think progressive people need to have a conversation about declining birth rates from a progressive perspective? Yeah, because like, look, it's not necessarily a bad thing because it, the, the relationship between declining birth rate and female education is quite strong. We yeah. sort of know that. I don't think it's like unreasonable to say that when women have more opportunities, there is a declining birth rate. So it's not necessarily a bad thing that there's yeah. a declining birth rate. But there are certainly a lot of women and men who would like to have families but the situation of economics and all other kind of cultural things as well is making that hard so I do think there is a space for a hopeful optimistic progressive argument um, solution that we need to be discussing but yeah it just seems to be really dominated by the right who are basically saying you need to breed otherwise all the ethnics will come here (laughs) and then Britain won't be white anymore but that's what it is, I think. I think if you want to I think if you want to have a conversation about declining birth rates from a progressive perspective, there's quite a lot of, let's face it, quite prosaic economic factors at play here. Obviously, there's also people's concern about overpopulation and that relationship with um, you know, climate change. But also, look, isn't it just economics, right? The annual cost of childcare has risen by £2,000 since 2010. Now, that's also a period of time where our real terms wages have not increased commensurately. The UK now has the second highest childcare costs among leading economies in the world. And that's on top of historically high rents and rising mortgage costs. What I am saying is, is it not just the case that... 13 years of conservative rule in this country. 14 now, baby. 2024. As we go into the 14th year, 14 years of conservative Oof. rule has left us all with soft cocks and dry vaginas. <laughs> Isn't that why there's a declining birth rate? People don't want a raw dog under a Tory government. Oh. That's my contention. I'm saying it's basic economics. My brother was uh, here over the Christmas holidays and him and his wife live in Germany. They have a young baby. There are, and I know that you can romanticise countries from the outside and people who live in Germany will probably be able to tell us there's a lot of specific problems raising kids there. But, you know, they've got proper paid paternity mm. and maternity leave. There's help for them with childcare. And they couldn't believe how difficult it was. And the way that they illustrated how difficult the situation clearly is for people in their position in this country is they went to Tesco and the baby formula was locked up. Wow. Which suggests that people are having to steal baby formula, which tells you how bad things have got in this country. There are 
basic pounds and pence reasons why having a child in 2024 is way more expensive and difficult. All I'm saying is you don't raw dog under the Tories. (laughs) Wrap it up under the Tories. I I am available if the Labour Party wants any election (laughs) slogans. Any election slogans suggesting? I do have a th- I do have an idea that we should do a PSUK dating club though. What do you mean? Because I think Tinder is hell, yeah. Hinge is war. It's awful. All these apps kind of entrench unfairness and racism and ableism, yeah. and they make everyone think that there's someone better around the corner, and there never is. So I think we should be proactive. What a PSUK dating app? Yeah, Podshag the UK. <laughs> Pod Shack the UK is what you're suggesting. It's just an idea. Okay. okay. Uh, <laughs> listeners, if you're single and want to put yourself out there via the medium of this podcast, write in and we will try oh and match God. you up. It's going to be like Indian matchmaking, but like lefty. You, you and I have finally, finally achieved the it. final form yeah. of Desi, uncle and aunt, which is trying to get everyone married oh, off. Brilliant. I'm, I'm at peace. <laughs> So we already know who our hero of the week is. It's Alan Bates, the man who took on the post office and won. So Nish, it just remains for you to tell us who our villain of the week is. Our villain of the week is amazingly a second time recipient of villain of the week uh, on Pod Save the UK. It's former Tory MP Peter Bone. Now, as a reminder, Peter Bone was the Conservative MP for Wellingborough who was suspended from the House of Commons over bullying and sexual misconduct allegations, which he denied. Uh, A report published by the MP's Behaviour Watchdog found he'd broken sexual misconduct rules by indecently exposing himself to a young male staffer during an overseas trip. It also upheld five allegations of bullying, including physically striking a member of staff. Following his suspension, a recall petition was signed by enough of his constituents for him to lose his seat and trigger a by-election. Uh, and the Sunday Times has now reported that Peter Bone threatened to run in the by-election as an independent and so split the Conservative vote unless Helen Harrison, a North Northamptonshire councillor, was chosen as the candidate to replace him. That's Helen Harrison, who, and I'm sure this is completely unrelated, happens to be Peter Bone's girlfriend, was duly chosen to contest the seat for the Conservative Party. Um, he, P- Peter Bone separated from his wife of 37 years in 2018 after his affair with Miss Harrison was made public by The Sun. And now she is standing as the candidate in his old seat, which, I mean, the ethics of that seem to be non-existent. I mean, but I don't know why sus, we're surprised. But it? why are we surprised? Peter Bone's whole vibe is sus. We're legally obliged to read this. Uh, Peter, <laughs> Peter Bone has denied the report in the Sunday Times and has said that it will be entirely unsurprising if Harrison was selected as she had featured on previous shortlists. But Peter, as with everything you've done in your career, it don't look good. <laughs> Nothing about it looks good, okay? You've had to vacate your seat because of allegations of sexual misconduct and bullying. The person being put up is your current paramour. <laughs> Surely, Peter, even you could understand that that looks shitty as all hell. And it's, you know, it's it feels like further evidence of, um, you know, just the Conservative Party in disarray and decline. It, it's real end of empire, Mm. people are shagging horses stuff. If you missed our review of 2023 episode, please do go back uh, and give it a listen. We had a lot of fun making it with our friends, the comedians Catherine Bohart and Andy Zaltzman. Among the many highs and lows that we discussed of 2023 uh, was one moment where Keir Starmer was showered in glitter by a campaigner from People Demand Democracy just as he was starting his party conference speech. And guess who got in touch with us? Hello, um, I'm Yaz. I'm the person <laughs> who poured glitter over Mr. Starmer. <laughs> um, that was probably the most uh, something of my political moment of the year. But I, I, I guess I actually wanted to share a different moment, like a um, a more hopeful one for me, which was back in spring. Um, where we had this big protest and there were NHS workers and union union members and civil servants and church leaders and cost of living groups and, and like environmental organisations of like completely different stripes, Greenpeace, Friends of the Earth, Just Stop Oil, all united at Parliament to demand an end to the fossil fuel era. And 
the beginning of a updated politics where citizens' assemblies would let people decide on the issues that affect them. It was amazing. And yeah, <laughs> maybe you didn't hear anything about it, probably. Um, I don't know, I guess that just says something about how someone lobbying a bit of glitter, um, I guess, is more interesting to people. But um, for me, it was where I took the most hope out of any moment in the last few years. That was Yaz Ashmawi, who was the campaigner from People Demand Democracy and the infamous thrower of glitter over Keir Starmer. A very inspiring thing. Great. And also pretty self-effacing from Yaz. I'll say that to uh, not pick himself as political moment of the year, but to go for climate protests. I thought that was very, very nice. I mean, very the nice picture message. he uh, described there was genuinely like, I, I was moved. Yeah. Everyone together just wanting an end to the smoke and the death and the destruction. Fantastic. Kathy Rivett has emailed in to say, Hello, Coco and Nish. My dad and I love the podcast. Last year I turned 18, so I've realised within the next year or so, my friends and I will be voting for the first time. I live in Shrewsbury, which is a very Tory area. I wanted to ask how I should encourage people my age that aren't as engaged in politics to vote in the next election. Recently had a conversation with an 18-year-old who said he's never going to vote as he doesn't want to take any interest in politics or the news. Sorry, I just have to just stop to take that in. I don't want to take any interest. It's kind of honest, it's quite I guess. Extraordinary, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was clear he comes from a privileged enough position to not need to care about the news. But how can people be encouraged to care enough to vote? Thanks very much, Kathy. Well, look, I think here's the thing. I would say the most important thing you have to say with eighteen-year-olds voting or not voting is if we want our politics to catered to different demographics, then we have to start participating. The The reality is people between the ages of 18 to 40, politics is not offering a huge amount for our demographic at the moment. And the only way to change that is by participating in it and dragging it and making it care about us. We have to make politicians care about us. And the only way we can do that is by voting. And look, I also think protest is a fundamental part of changing politics. Uh, but I think it has to be a combination of protest and participation. And we have to we have to build a connection between the things that people are out on the streets marching for and the things that governments are actually doing. And in a nutshell, you've got to be in it to win it. <laughs> that's, that's it. You've got to be in it to win it. You've got to be in it to win it. Or you've got to be in it to be profoundly disappointed <laughs> yeah, by it. Exactly. Um, if you've got something you'd like to share with us, you can get in touch with us by emailing psuk at reducelistening.co.uk. It's always nice to hear your voices, so do send us a voice note on WhatsApp. Our number is 07514 644 572. Internationally, that's plus 447514 Haven't done that number since last year. Don't forget to follow at Pod Save the UK on Instagram and Twitter. You can also find us on YouTube for access to full episodes and other exclusive content. And if you're as opinionated as we are, consider dropping us a review. Pod Save the UK is a reduced listening production for Crooked Media. Thanks to senior producer Musty Aziz and digital producer Alex Bishop. Video editing was by David Kaplowitz and the music is by Vasilis Fotopoulos. Thanks to our engineers David Dargahi and Hannah Stewart. The executive producers are Ed Morish, Dan Jackson and Madeline Harringer with additional support from Ari Schwartz. Remember to hit subscribe for new shows on Thursday on Amazon, Spotify or Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. 